You know, it's Palm Sunday. Um, I titled this morning's message, The King Has Arrived. And if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me in John's Gospel in chapter 12. Uh, trust me, we'll get there eventually. A lot of things along the way that I want to encourage you with in Scripture and remind you of. You know, I, I love the story of Palm Sunday, and especially the entrance that Jesus makes here that uh, we're going to read about in John's Gospel. But if you think about, you know, uh, entrances for a moment. I, I read this story yesterday about a man, and it was a man that he, again, he arrived, it says, at the pearly gates of heaven. And obviously, as always, St. Peter met him there, and he took down the man's name, and he began to look in the book of life for his name, and he says to the guy, he says, hey, buddy, I'm sorry, but I really can't find your name here. I can't find anything on you, for a matter of fact. And it's not that I'm finding bad, it's just that I can't find any good either. I'll tell you what, Peter says to him, he says, if you can tell me one thing that you did on earth that was good, then you know what, you're in. So the guy thought about it for a second and he said, oh man, he says, uh, I can tell you, yeah, I got, I got something. Peter says, okay, go ahead. And he says, well, one time I was driving down the road and I saw this motorcycle gang and they were surrounding this woman whose car had broken down. So I pulled my car over and I popped the trunk and I pulled out the tire iron from my, my car and I ran over there. I shoved my way through all those bikers and I stood there next to that woman and I said, hey, if you want to get to her, then you're going to have to go through me first. And he says, and I bonked that big old biker dude right on the head. And St. Peter looks at him, you know, he's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. He says, when did that happen? And the guy says, three minutes ago. Uh, so, you know, I know you're laughing at home because Carla's laughing right here with me. Larry's starting to giggle in the back, and so my wife is chuckling. So that's three. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I thought about this this morning. You know, gosh, even in the midst of this coronavirus when there's all this, you know, just doom and gloom, man, we still need to laugh. We still need to have joy, and I pray that uh, you do this morning. You know, yet in all seriousness, you know, we've probably learned a lot. I know I have over the last few weeks with regard to this coronavirus. And it's just really how fragile life is. And again, just how vulnerable, you know, we all are and susceptible to sickness and disease and that, uh, you know, the impact, you know, that we, we have on one another's life. And that can be for good or that could be for evil here. But I love the the good, you know, that I'm seeing. And it's such a such a blessing to be able to share with you this morning the story, you know, from the Bible with regard to Jesus' triumphal entry, even in the midst of evil and all the things that were rising up against him there. That, you know, ultimately, again, as I've been sharing with you these past weeks, and it's not a cliche, you know, this coronavirus isn't going to have the last word. Jesus is going to have the last word. He always has the last word. And we can rest in that, and we should trust in that today. You know, I was sharing with our, our Wednesday night, you know, group, if you followed us online at all, that the story from Joseph's life, if you recall, and I mean, here's a guy that was, you know, upright and righteous. Matter of fact, uh, you know, he's a, he's a type of Jesus Christ. You know, this greater than Joseph is Jesus Christ himself. So we, we see, you know, like 120 different kind of examples of, of how Joseph's life is just like Jesus and the things that he went through. And yet Joseph, you know, didn't sin. Joseph, even when things were totally going wrong in his life, he continued 
to trust God and look to God. And, and I was reminding our church family then, I want to remind you this morning, is even in the midst of this, and we know that um, as the scientists are telling us, you know, based on the documentation we have, that this could probably be the worst week that we'll face with regard to the coronavirus. And so uh, when I look at that and I look at it in light of scripture, I mean, you look at even this last week of Jesus' life, it, it gets worse before it gets better. And sometimes that's a reality in life. But the good news is you have to remember the end of it all. It's that it does get better. You know, again, reminding you, this too shall pass. This is just a season. This is just a moment in time. And so the, the goal here is in our life, the key to our fruitfulness or our success, you might say, is to keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, that's what we are exhorted all throughout scriptures, not to look to the left, not to look to the right. We're not looking to the government. We're not looking to, you know, even medicine here. We're looking to God himself and he will keep us and, and he will protect us. You know, I, I love, you know, when I, I think about you know, Jesus reminding us in, in John's gospel, he said, you know, that, that you're safe in my hands. And he goes, and I'm safe in my father's hands. That we have this double protection. He said, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. There's a security that God wants us to have that we can only find in him. And, and I pray that you're finding that, that through this, this coronavirus and being isolated and being at home, that it's doing in your life like it's doing in so many, that it's causing people to look to God. Uh, to question, you know, all the things that are going on in the world and, and to look to him for help and to, people are praying like never before. Uh, we're going to send out a prayer guide this week that I hope you'll get on board with. And every day we'll give you a directive as to things that you can pray about. Everything from personal revival to church revival to our national revival to world revival. Um, I really do believe we live in the last days, and I really do believe that the time is short. And I'm looking forward to Jesus returning and, and righting every wrong and healing every disease and bringing the dead back to life again. And what a glorious, glorious day that will be. But I, I, as I look at this, you know, and I think of, you know, Joseph's life, I think of other passages of Scripture. You know, if you're a note taker, you might write these down, you know, about the fact that, you know, we're, you know, we're Evil exists, you know, in the world and like even in Joseph's life that what the enemy would mean for evil, God does turn for good. But I, I find that theme all throughout scripture. It's not like there's just one story or people could go, oh yeah, that was, you know, one time that happened, but it's all bad the rest of the time. You go, no, it's God constantly doing good. He trumps evil every single time. Romans chapter five, you know, reminds us where sin abounds, grace does all the more. You know, Philippians 2 you know, 5 through 11, speaking, you know, about Jesus, it says, though Jesus being in the form of God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, that there was the evil, the, the worst that man had to, to reveal we see at the cross, but the best of God is revealed at the cross as well. So when you're in the midst of something, yeah, there's a, there's a bitter way to go and there's a better way to go. There's always a fork in the road. And my hope is that you take the right fork, that you take the fork that always leads you to Jesus. Look what it says as you continue on in Philippians there. It says, then therefore God also exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and even those under the earth, everything, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And wherever you see evil, and it looks like evil is one, 
God, like I said, defeats it. And he overcomes it. And that's what the cross is all about. That's what Easter is all about. It's why we're promoting that aspect of Easter changes everything. It's not a statement. It's not a cliche. It's a reality in our life. And what a difference. You think about it, you know, this week, you know, we're, we're in the most difficult, you know, aspect of this coronavirus. We're hoping that this week it reaches the apex and starts its way down. But you think about, you know, with regard to the cross, I mean, what a difference three days makes, right? Between Friday, Good Friday and Easter morning. You know, again, just being reminded of the hope that we have, you know, in Jesus. And so, you know, as you look at this, you know, in scripture with me, um, you know, I think about like I said, this last week of Jesus' life, it's called uh, the Passion Week, and for good reason. The word passion means suffering, and that's what we're going to find, you know, that Jesus does. I mean, you could say that all hell was unleashed upon him uh, during this last week of his life, but the good news of the gospel, again, is what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it for good, and we just can't lose sight of that because it's so easy, like I said, to walk by sight than it is to walk by faith. That's what's happening for many in the world today. They're listening to the wrong news. Instead of listening to the good news of the gospel, they're turning on the news and they're getting, you know, this, you know, what, call it fake news, whatever you want to call it. You know, we're, uh, you know, uh, slanted, you know, to a certain perspective or whatever, you know, someone wants you to believe. And for the most part, they don't want you to believe good. And, and it's not that, you know, Christianity is this pie in the sky. It's reality. It's, it's a faith that's based upon fact, that God is faithful to his word, that what God has promised to do, he has always, church, faithfully accomplished. And, and, and again, and he hasn't stopped now. He, we're in the midst of something that we don't understand. The Bible says we see right now dimly darkly at best. It says, but then one day, when we're with him, we'll see him face to face. And guess what? All the, the why questions that we have, even for today, we won't even be asking them. And you go, why? Because we'll be home. We'll be in his presence. And in his presence, the Bible says, is the fullness of joy. In the presence of God, always, as Larry was praying in worship, wherever God's presence is, his peace is there. That's why I love being together with my brothers and sisters that are here. You know, I, I think of, you know, as I look out, you know, and I do want to say, you, you guys, my wife and I were just praying about this last night and just thanking God for our church and especially our worship team and our sound personnel and our security guys. You know, as I look in the, Chris, you know, is in the front there and Carla and Larry, uh, John and uh, Isaac and Scott and Tori and got Mike Cosper over here and Dylan somewhere around here and and uh, uh, Jeff you know back at the soundboard there and outside we've got you know some of our security guys you know we've got Tink is out there and Kevin's out there and uh, David one of our ushers is here he's here to receive an offering and he was jobless today but he's still here that just demonstrates how faithful he is but. Uh, in all, in all seriousness, I mean, we can't do what we do without him. And there's just, you know, so much good that God is doing, you know, especially in times like this where there is a risk in a sense that, you know, we're coming together, but we're coming together for you, our church family. We're coming together for the Lord, knowing that this is what he's called us to do. And as I share with you all the time, you know, the safest place for any of us to be is in the center of God's will. And, and the most dangerous place to be is any other place. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't all get the coronavirus and die. But none of us would be complaining. Uh, you might be, 
Maybe not. But, uh, you know, but think about this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The key is we just don't have that fear. Again, we don't want to be stupid. We don't want to do things. We're not tempting God at all, but we're trusting God. And we want to model a faith to you, church, that's real, a faith that is trusting and looking to God. And we, our prayer, you know, as a ministry team here at Calvary Chapel is that you're doing the exact same thing. And we all put our shoes on the same way. We all have to deal with fear and anxiety, and we've all dealt with it, and we're all dealing with it. But we're reminded, and we keep reminding one another, what we want to remind you today as we look at this story, is that God is faithful to his word. That everything that happens, happens at the exact appointed moment in time. There are no oops. There are no accidents, you know, with God. You know, Jesus died. He rose again, just like he said. You know, the Apostle Paul in in Galatians 4 Uh, verses four and five, he puts it like this. He says, but when the fullness of time has come, and I love this, I was studying this yesterday. He said, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the thing that caught my eye was that, that term there, fullness of time, because what it means is perfect time, that God's time is perfect. And then you think about Jesus was born at the perfect time in human history. Of all the times that he could have been born, God says that was the perfect time. And you might be thinking, you know, what made it, you know, the perfect time? We'll look at that, you know, here today as we, we talk about Palm Sunday. And, and again, one of the things that you have to understand is this event is spoken of in all four of the gospel accounts. All four speak of the triumphal entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem that day. We find it in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel. And if all the gospel writers, you know, thought it was important and they placed great emphasis on it, then we should too. And that's why we're studying that text then today. I mean, to think about this, there's 89 chapters in, that make up the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, 89 in total. Four of those chapters deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Just four chapters. We don't know hardly anything about his childhood and his upbringing. Most of that is about genealogies. And then, you know, 85 chapters out of the 89 deal with the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. So you can see where the emphasis is by the gospel writers. 29 chapters deal with the last week of Jesus' life. And 13 chapters, get this, deal with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So again, when you read the gospel account, you know, what are we focusing in on? The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, that's where our hope is because he lives. He's made a promise to us. We live also. Look there in John's gospel in chapter 12 with me. It says this in John 12, 12. It says the next day, you know, Jesus had been, remember, you know, um, at a meal just the day before, the night before, they were celebrating him. They were celebrating, you know, uh, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. Mary had anointed, you know, Jesus' feet with a costly perfume, and Jesus was off the rails there, and uh, you know, saying that he's wasting the money. And Jesus, you know, says, you know, that she's done it for his burial. This was no accident. Jesus was born into this world to die. He was born to die for me and you to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin on Calvary's cross. And yet we know, you know, that uh, Passover was one of the the three major mandatory feasts that the Jews would make to Jerusalem. They'd come for Passover, for Pentecost, for Tabernacles. And by this time in, in Jewish history, we know if you study history, is that they were pretty burnt out on making their way, 
you know, back to Jerusalem. It's one of the things I said I feared about uh, in the church today. You know, again, uh, as would the church get so comfortable um, because of this isolation that we're worshiping from home that all of a sudden it just becomes a way of life for people. And we're praying against that because obviously it's not God's desire, His will. But the heart of man is no different today than it was in Jesus' day. And, and most certainly, even when Jesus was walking on this earth, there were people going, you know, we don't want to go all the way back to Jerusalem and we'll just worship, you know, here. That's exactly what happened in the north, in the divided kingdom. You know, is that, hey, we'll just, you know, make a little place up here where you can, you know, do your thing and that'll save you the trip, you know, back to Jerusalem. And so there was just this, you know, kind of a, a apathy of sorts that, you know, was into their praying and their worship, you know, of God. Um, they saw it, you know, not as a privilege, and I hope you still see worship as a privilege that we get. I mean, to be able to love God and to love one another, to worship him and to, to love each other and to serve God and to serve one another. Um, they were kind of fried on that. You know, like I said, the laws that you could see that were created within Judaism at that time weren't looking, you know, to how they could be responsible for one another, but they were looking for ways that they could get out of being responsible for one another. And so as they, you know, were bored, you might say, in their kind of lifeless religion here, you know, James Boyce in his commentary on Galatians, he writes this about this specific moment in time that Jesus was living. And it speaks to what we're reading here in the gospel of John. He writes this, it was a time when the Pax Romana extended over the civilized earth, when travel and commerce were there for possible in a way that had formerly been impossible. So when you think about why that specific time was Jesus born, and when you think about him telling the disciples, you know, to go into all the world, well, the opportunity to go into all the world and spread the gospel, it was for the very first time in human history was actually possible. It says, great roads link the empire of the Caesars together and its diverse regions were linked far more significantly by all the pervasive language of the Greeks. And so now also, you know, you don't have, look at all the languages that exist today. I, I was reading just in a missionary report that we're about 13 years away from 2020, uh, from finally having the Bible translated into every known language on the face of this earth, which is an amazing thing. But look at, it's taken us from the time of Christ to 2020 to be able to do that because there's such a diversity of language. But in Jesus' day, there was one common language because of the Roman Empire, and it was, it was the Greek language. And so pretty much everybody understood Greek. And so for the, the message of the gospel to get out, it didn't have to go out into hundreds of different languages. So I think you know, as people think about that, hopefully that helps you make sense of why this was such a, a, a moment in time, this perfect moment in time when Jesus was born into the world. And it says, then add to the fact that the world was sunk in moral abyss so low that even the pagans cried out against it and that the spiritual hunger was everywhere evident and that one has perfect time for the perfect coming of Christ and the early expansion of the Christian gospel. So basically, you know, what he was saying is that, man, that was the perfect time. People were so fed up. It's like I look at life in America. People are becoming fed up with the, the immorality, you know, and the lack of decency uh, that, that ex exists in this country. And so part of what this coronavirus has done is it's brought us to our knees. It's caused people that were completely, just totally uh, self-centered to re-examine themselves. And, and again, and when the world can do that, you know, when God's, you know, calling the church to do it all the time, it's one of the things we're to do when we receive communion. And we'll do that again on Friday and Easter morn. 
is to first examine ourselves. Am I in the faith? You know, am I loving God? Am I loving other people? Well, the world is asking that question themselves now. You, when you start thinking about your immortality, your, or mortality, excuse me, and you think, uh, man, you know, am I ready to meet my maker face to face? And all of a sudden, you know, our conscience brings that conviction of, no, I'm not loving God and I'm not loving people. Uh, and that's happening in the world. And like I said, I'll, I'll close with some thoughts even on that. But, uh, you know, what an amazing opportunity we have, you know, in the church today. And so pilgrims were arriving there, you know, in Jerusalem and Jesus was uh, making his way with his disciples too. And this timing, like I said, is historic. I mean, but it's not coincidental. It's providential. I was sharing that, you know, again on Wednesday with the life of Joseph. You know, God is a God of providence. You know, the, the Bible tells us in advance, I mean, like something like 483 years you might say almost to the exact date, if it is, you know, the exact date that uh, the book of Daniel gives us the, the details uh, about this chapter here that we're reading about the, the triumphal entry that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. John chapter 12, verse 13 goes on. It says, and the people, they took uh, branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, I want you to be aware of something that waving palm branches wasn't something new that day. It wasn't like they went, oh, you know what? I don't have anything to wave. We'll just go grab a palm branch. Uh, that had become a common practice, kind of a, a national practice in the nation of, of, of Israel. It was really symbolic of, of their hope that there was a Messiah that was coming. So it became something that was used in worship as well. And so it's, you know, again, very poignant that uh, they knew that it was in their hearts to take these palm branches and, you know, to wave them, um, you know, as they looked and they waited for, you know, a liberator. Now, obviously they were wanting liberation from the Roman government over them at that time, the, really the oppression uh, of the Roman authorities. That term Hosanna means save us now. And they said so they they were tired. They were fed up with, you know, government control over their lives. They wanted freedom. And, uh, you know, it says in Psalm 118, 25 and 26, uh, it says, save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, a messianic psalm there, this psalm of praise. You know, when you think about that, that term or that phrase there, he who comes in the name of the Lord, it speaks specifically about the Messiah. They were wanting the Messiah to come. I pray that today that uh, we're praying, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, uh, come again, Lord Jesus, not come the first time, but come again for us, just like he promised that he would. That's our prayer today. Uh, verse 14 and 15 there in, in John 12, then it says, Then Jesus, who had found a young donkey, sat on it, as is written. Again, not an accident, not coincidence, but God's providence. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. That's a fulfillment there in verse 15 of Zechariah, his prophecy in, in Zechariah 9.9. So his action there is, you know, again, something that's unique to anything Jesus has done prior to this. If you recall, every time Jesus did a miracle, if he healed somebody, whatever he would do, he would look at the people and he would tell them what? Don't say anything to anybody. Which I had to laugh as I thought about that again yesterday. Is Jesus, you know, obviously we know he's smart. So he's telling the disciples all along, you know, don't tell anybody. And what did they do every time? They told somebody, you know, which is amazing, you know. But it's good in one sense because then he told them, hey, uh, now go tell them everything that I've told you 
And they did a pretty good job at it because we're sitting here, you know, today, 2020, and that gospel message has reached the far ends of the earth, just like Jesus said. He said to his disciples, go and tell the people. That's what we'll celebrate next uh, Sunday morning as we celebrate Easter. He's not here. He's risen just as he said, go tell the people. And they did exactly that. And uh, so it's pretty exciting, you know, when you, you look at this story, because up to this point, Jesus was withdrawing from the people. He wasn't presenting himself, you know, as the king of the Jews. He said, and he would constantly, there's, a, there's something in scripture, you'll, you'll see this over and over again. He would say, my hour has not yet come. And now here he says, my hour has come. The hour of what? His suffering. The hour where he would go to the cross and pay the penalty for my sin and your sin as the promised Messiah for the nation of Israel, for those who would believe and for the Gentile world, those as far off who, who would believe in his name. And so he comes into the city on a donkey. There's no mistake in him now. I mean, there's a parade, you might say, in the making. But it wasn't what the Jewish leaders had in mind. It's not what they thought with regard to the promised Messiah. Somehow they had overlooked Zechariah's prophecy and they thought that their Messiah would be riding into town on a white horse, prepared for war, to take on the Roman government, like I said, to, to liberate them. You know, we know that Jesus will come back, and I love to remind you of this, he's going to come back on a white horse. You know, some said that, you know, that horse has a name. Uh, it's not a horse with no name. It's Air, Force, Air, Air Horse One. You know, he'll be riding someday. Air Horse One, you know, might see that, you know, on the side of his saddle, you know, or what, but uh, one day, but this day he comes on a donkey. And so people are missing it. Everybody except the Roman government, because it was customary for a Roman, you know, soldier, you know, you think about this and it's really you know, a military leader from the Roman government. They would have completely understood the symbolism of a donkey here. Because in Rome, when a conquering general returned home from battle, he would be riding a donkey. When you think about Jesus is riding a donkey in the sense before he goes into battle. But it's kind of like in sports. You know, when you're the reigning champion, man, you come into the ring, there's there's a confidence there. There's an assurance that you know that you're the victory. You know, you know that you're the victorious one. And that's what the Bible says of Jesus. He's king of kings and Lord of lords, okay? So he's coming into town not hoping that he's going to win the battle the same way when he went into the temptation in the wilderness. Remember it says he was led of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Not as if he could lose the temptation, but was to defeat the devil. Jesus has constantly defeated the devil. And we know that today. We worship him in light of the cross, right? It's not before us. It's behind us. We don't worship him in hopes that he'll resurrect from the dead. We worship him because he is resurrected from the dead. Our victory has already been won. Paul writes that to the church in 1 Corinthians. Now, thanks be to God. In chapter 15, verse 57, he says, thanks be to God who does what? Who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and this is what this is all about. This is, a, this is a victory parade before he even goes to the cross. That's how sure Jesus is of the word of God. That's how sure he is of the faithfulness of God. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down that what? I might take it up again. He knows that, you know, again, he can lay his life down. He, you know, the scripture says that even the father himself would not allow the Holy One for his body to decay it couldn't hold him. He was sinless. 
You know, the Bible says, you know, that the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't sin, but the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sin, nailed it to the cross, died in our place, but because he's perfect, he was sinless, death couldn't hold him. It was like trying to grab water. And three days later, he rose again, just like he said. But he had to come as a man. That was the only way that he could be our redeemer. And you go back and you study what it is to be a goel, to be a kinsman redeemer. He had to become like us. That's why he took on human flesh. But he was always God. He was always sinless. He was always perfect in every way. It's his deity that we start to understand a little bit more as we study Easter, as we study the cross. And so if you look at, you know, all the way back in the book of Daniel, you know, we find this, the timeline, you know, the perfection of God's events. You know, I, I want to walk through this with you and, and try to do it in a way that, you know, again, the questions come up this week and talking, you know, with, with people about that are studying Easter and walking through this. Um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, it, it tells us that from the going forth of the commandment, there's going to be 483 years that take place and the Messiah will be cut off and killed. That's what it's speaking of here with regard to Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this triumphal uh, day that he enters into the city and then ultimately will go to the cross this next week and suffer and die. In Daniel 25, 9.25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. So again, we're talking about something that's prophetic here. So Daniel is prophesying that there, there's going to be you know, seven sevens Again, and if you think about this, you know, with me, it says, you know, seven, seven-year periods of time. So if we took that, went seven times seven equals 49, that Jerusalem was rebuilt. It says, and then there'll be 62 sevens, that's 62 seven-year periods, which equals then, if you do the math on that, 434 years. 49 years plus 434 years then equals 483 years total. So what's that all mean? Well, in the 5th century BC, there was a Hebrew uh, named Nehemiah. Remember, he was the, the cupbearer to the Medo-Persian king Artaxerxes, who wrote a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We read that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, that's not talking about the, the car there, that's a month, and it says, in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, he says, I took wine and gave it to the king. Now, he, he was the cupbearer to the king is why he was doing that. It says, now, I had never before said in his, been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face so sad since you were not sick? And so Nehemiah goes on and he explains you know, to Artaxerxes that he's heard the reports that the walls of the city uh, of his people there in Jerusalem was still dead. Desolate. So Nehemiah makes a request and he asks that he be allowed to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. And King Artaxerxes on the spot grants the wish. He gave him official documents and letters so they could have easy passage there. And you go, why? Because God's hand was upon him. You know that old expression, you know, Pastor Chuck Smith used to share all the time, where God guides, 
God provides. And what he was doing then, he's still doing today, church. So he said, you know, as you look on, and so we're told you know, so this was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, uh, Longimaeus, it was his reign. So when he ascended to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, it was in July of 465 B.C. Then it says, you know, the 20th year of his reign would have begun then in July of 446 B.C. So kind of stay with me here. So the decree occurred approximately nine months later in the month of Nisan, March or April on our calendar. The first day of Nisan in 445 B.C. corresponds with the 14th day of March. So if you look at Daniel's prophecy, you'd be able to count then the time of the decree and how it goes forth from, you know, the time that then till the time that Messiah presents himself. That would be Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey or as we're reading here today, Palm Sunday. And then at the end of this week is cut off. You know, there's a book titled The Coming Prince that was written by Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head investigator of Scotland Yard. And uh, he based his investigation, you know, of these dates here uh, that were in question. And so he looks at them, you know, studied them out. You know, first there was the commandment given, you know, in history, just as we read, that was on March 14th, 445 BC, where Artaxerxes gives the command to rebuild Jerusalem. So if you take that date, 445 BC, and you go forward with the number that 483 that we get from Daniel's prophecy, we should be able to arrive at a very specific number in human history here. So Sir Robert Anderson points out in his book that if you go forward 483 years, precise numbers at that, not using the Julian calendar that's based on 365 and a third days, but using the old Babylonian or Jewish calendar, which was 360 days, that was a, a lunar year based on the moon and not the solar calendar, which is based on the earth revolving around the sun. So if you do the math, here's the bottom line, why it's important that we get this. Because there's no accidents with God. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on, on the colt of a donkey, that was a very, very specific moment in time that was prophesied hundreds of years before so that we wouldn't miss it. And, and so that you and I would learn to trust what God says, especially learn to trust, just like Daniel had to trust, that here you are, you know, held in captivity. You know, you might be feeling you're held in captivity today in your own home. You're looking around, you know, what's going on with this coronavirus, and you're going, is this the end? You know, we, we need answers, and the Bible has answers. There, there's safety and there's security in Jesus. He said, again, don't worry about, you know, what man can do. You don't worry about what a virus could do to you, but worry about what God could do to you. And again, he hasn't appointed us unto wrath, his word said, if you're in Christ Jesus, but unto salvation. He didn't come into this world to condemn the world. Jesus came to save the world. And so dates are important. His specific pinpoint times in human history are important to us to know that he's in control of everything that goes on, even when it doesn't look like it. And this last week of his life, of Jesus' life, it definitely looks like things are out of control. But what we see in studying the Word of God is it's right exactly on spot, on time, as God said. So if you do the math, 360 days in a year times 483 years, you come up with 173,880 days. So if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., when the decree by Artaxerxes was given, and you go forward from there, 173,880 days, that brings you to April 6th, 
32 AD. Now, I know that there's some theologians that don't agree on that date, that, you know, the dates are wrong. And you go, well, we know in Scripture that it's 173,880 days. The bottom line is it's a specific date in time when Jesus will ride that donkey into Jerusalem. And there were people that were looking and there were people that were waiting. There were people that are there that day that recognize this is the Messiah. There's people today, you know, that are recognizing, you know, it's like, I love that, you know, Christmas card that says, you know, wise men still seek God. And it's still true today that wise men and women are still seeking God. And if you're seeking today, you know, the Bible says you'll find him when you seek him with all of your heart. And so it's important, you know, again, as you study scripture and you, you receive it into your heart and you believe it and you stand upon it, there's a comfort that comes with that, that you recognize, again, that word providence and that God's in control. No matter what goes on, whether I, don't, I get it or not, and guess what? <laughs> a lot of the time, I have no idea what God is doing. But that's why we worship him, amen? You know, God that is so little that I can, you know, my mind can comprehend him. You know, it's been well said that he's not big enough to worship. We serve a big God that's beyond knowledge, beyond understanding completely. But he says, but he'll, he'll do something for us if we'll trust him, if we'll put our hope in him. The Bible says that there's a peace that, that surpasses even on our own understanding. And it'll fill our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Because know this. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're also receiving his peace because where Jesus is, his presence is there. And where Jesus' presence is there, church, his peace is there too. That's how we know that we're, we're with him. And so when the world is trying to crash down upon us, and the enemy's trying to attack us and make us fearful, and find your shelter in the Lord. Run to him. Bring all your cares to him. You know, lay them at his feet. You know, we can't, we can't carry uh, all these world's problems and all the things that are going on. Verse 16 then in John chapter 12, it says this. It says, his disciples didn't understand the things at first. That brings me comfort. I hope it does you. Uh, but when Jesus was glorified, you know, I love what John Corson, you know, said with regard to that. You know, that if you and I would just keep glorifying him in our life, you just keep worshiping, you just keep praising him, you know, you just keep seeking him. That with that, and you know it to be true already, what I'm about to say, understanding comes with that. Our eyes get a little bit more open. We, we, we start to pick up a little bit better what God is doing. And it comes by being with him. It comes by knowing him. You know, the people that truly know God, you know, and love God, enjoy not just the, the presence of God and the peace of God, but they enjoy what God is doing because they recognize that he's in everything. That everything that exists, like I said, was created by him and for him. And even when it looks like evil is persisting, we know in the back of our heart and in our mind by faith that even what the enemy meant for evil, God will turn it for good. But yet I get it, you know, even in this coronavirus, we're in the middle of trials, we're in the middle of the unfamiliar. It's easy to make us unsettled. All the more reason why we need to stand on what? The sure word of God. The word of God that was spoken on a very specific day about a very specific time in the future. And guess what? The devil couldn't even stop it. And I love that. And if he couldn't stop it then, he won't stop it now. You know, God is faithful to his promise. Verse 17 and 18 
tells us this. It says, therefore, the, the people who were with him were with Jesus. And it says, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. You know, that, that's the beauty of being a follower of Christ. You know, he hasn't, God hasn't told us to go out and make up our own message. He's given us a message, a message from God, that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's our message. That, that's the hope of Easter. That's why Easter changes everything for everybody who places their hope and their trust in Jesus. And it says they bore witness to that. And it says, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So at that point, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. And so why people were coming to Jesus was because they had heard the news that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they figured, you know, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can surely get rid of this Roman, you know, um, you know government that is you know, hanging over our heads here. They, they believed in the, in the power of Jesus. And so they, they saw the proof. They, and so, so that because of that, they wanted to meet Jesus. The people were attracted to him. And yet, you know, it tells us that in verse 19, it says, the Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. It says, look, the whole world has gone after him. And so they plotted to kill him. But just know this, you know, as we just prepare to close here today, every plot of evil that was set against Jesus, God turned for good. Everything that the enemy might use for evil in my life and your life today, church, God will turn it for good if we'll look to him, if we'll trust him. You know, and there's, and there's hardships going on. I, I know some that are here today. I mean, some have received the news that, hey, their, their business is closed down. They're going, man, where's my next paycheck going to come from? You know, Jesus didn't say that as Christians, we're not going to suffer. We're going to suffer things in this life. But that suffering isn't in vain. It's for nothing. And it's not for nothing. It's not, we're not being punished God is using it. Just like, remember, the man who was born blind and the disciples came and that's the natural response. Whenever something bad happens or someone dies or they get sick or, you know, we don't understand something, we always go, well, God, is it, is it their sin or was it the sin of their parents? You know, uh, somebody's fault. You know, we got to blame somebody, right? And yet, what did Jesus say? He said it was neither. It's not like there's only two options here. You know, the, there's really three. There's, you know, your thought, my thought, and then there's God's thought, amen? And, and Jesus said, neither. He said, it's that God could be glorified. And remember, and then Jesus did something that was so amazing. And one of my favorite stories, you know, I guess being a guy, I love this one. But, you know, of all his healings in the Bible, this guy's got eye sockets, but he doesn't have eyeballs. It's not like he has eyes and he's just blind, doesn't see. He doesn't have eyeballs. So Jesus, <laughs> he picks up some dirt on the ground and spits in it like only a guy could do, you know? And I don't think my wife would do that, would you? No. And, and starts rubbing it together in the form of a, of a ball and puts it in the guy's eye, two of them, perfectly spit upon pieces of dirt and sticks them in the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash his eyes and, and then he'll see. And he does it. I mean... What are you talking about a miracle? What was it demonstrating? It was demonstrating he's the God of creation. What did God do in the, in the very beginning? It says he took man from what? The, the dirt. 
you know, dust and he fashioned him into man. And it says, and he breathed the breath of life into him. Jesus was connecting the dots in their hearts and minds. They're going, hey, you know, I am who I am. I am who you think I am. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I am Jesus. I am the Christ. And I have come to set you free. And he truly did. I'll leave you with this this morning. Last thing I want to tell you before we go. If I could tell you what time it was. I guess it doesn't matter because my phone's, or my, okay, it's 9.56. I got this covered. I was looking this up this morning before, before I came here. Thinking about, you know, what the enemy has meant for evil, God has turned for good. Because that's what I want you to lock in here. All the things that are about to happen in the life of Jesus, you know, it's pure evil. Like I said, we're going to see the worst that mankind has to offer throughout this last week of Jesus' life and what they did to our Lord and our Savior. But what we see also at the same time is the best that God has to offer in offering up his son for us. But as of this morning, there's nearly 1,300,000 people who have been infected by the coronavirus and approximately 67,000 people who've died from the virus as well. That's a lot of people when you think about it. And it's sad. You know, and we'll close today. You know, we want to pray for those that not only have contracted the disease, but uh, for those families who've lost loved ones. And yet, you know, even with this news, I want you to understand what the enemy has meant for evil here. You know, people have asked, you know, why is this happening? Franklin Graham said it best last night on Fox News. He said, you know, this coronavirus is in the world because of sin, because of man's rebellion against God. And the only way of truly stopping it is when God brings healing to this nation, to these people of, of the world, when we cry out to him. And he restores it one day. But until then, it's not that God created this. It's, this is our own doing in that sense of rebelling against God. And yet there's some amazing news in the midst of this. Again, like I said, because of what the enemy has meant for evil, God is turning for good. Those are astounding numbers. You know, the number of people that have contracted the disease and those that have lost their lives to it. But I want you to think about this for a second. Do you realize this? More people have come to know Jesus during the last four weeks than have contracted the coronavirus disease. I want you to think about that and just the magnitude of that. Because see, people that have contracted these, some of them are going to be healed. Some, some of them have died. But everybody who receives Jesus Christ is healed for eternity. Like I said, there is something greater than the coronavirus out there. And that's called sin. Because sin that's unrepented of leads to eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's why Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day. He was going to the cross where he would suffer and where he would die so that life could be possible, eternal life for those who had placed their hope and their trust in him. You know, the coronavirus isn't going to have the last say. Jesus is. But here's something you can do and I can do. You know, we're separated. We're not able to invite our friends to come to church, you know, this next week and experience, you know, this great celebration, you know, of Easter. But you can do that from your own home. Is again, you can take the time, and I want to encourage you to do this, is 
do a little video clip. You know, take your smartphone or your computer and sit in front of it and five minutes or less, that's it. It could be the difference between heaven and hell for someone that you know. I mean, let, let's, let's use this, you know, we're having to be spread out here. Let's use our being spread out to spread the gospel like never before. What the enemy has meant for evil here, church, let's turn it for good. So at your home, my home, is take time, make that video, make it five minutes or less and share Easter changes everything because my life is proof. And then push that out through social media, out to the world, everybody that's in your circle. Take that, that chance, take that risk and put that hashtag on there. Easter changes everything. And then let's watch. Let's, let's see the numbers after we come back after next week of the number of people. I bet what you're going to see is that apex that it's been flattened and Again, more people are going to be surviving, but we're going to see the number of people getting saved just continue to go and go. I hope it never reaches an apex. I hope that that never gets flattened out. I, just, I pray that every person that we come in contact with, that we become contagious with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. The same way that this virus is spreading person to person. Hey, let's use this time to be contagious for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's spread the gospel one person at a time until all the world hears that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love. And we thank you for, again, the privilege that you give us to come and to, uh, Lord, share your word, your life, your love with people. We pray that today, if there's anybody watching at home that's yet to receive you as Savior and Lord, that, God, they wouldn't miss this opportunity right now, that they would pray in their own heart, Lord Jesus, save me, a sinner, someone who's broken your law, broken your commands. I, I understand, Lord, and I want forgiveness, and I need forgiveness, and I thank you that, Lord, you offer freely forgiveness for me today. And so I ask you to come into my heart, come into my life, and cause me to be born again. Fill me with your spirit so that I can understand your word. And I have a power, Lord, to live victoriously. I, I have your spirit that not only seals me for the day of my salvation, but, Lord, your spirit that brings me peace and comfort and joy, even in the midst of trials and tribulation, even in the midst of this coronavirus, that I would recognize, Lord, that you're with me and that I'm never alone. Uh, Lord, we recognize, God... Uh, we can feel alone, but help them know they're not alone. You can pray that prayer. You can pray something along those lines. Thanking Jesus for dying for you. Opening your heart to him, and he'll save you from your sin. And just end it with a simple amen, a simple thank you, Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would minister to your church today, to our church, Lord, in particular. God, we miss them so much, and we wish that we could be together. And Lord, I pray that they would just feel a, a virtual hug today from uh, us to them, uh, knowing that we're praying for them. And Lord, thanking you for them. Uh, Lord, it's really distance does make the heart grow fonder. And we look so forward to a, a wonderful celebration that we're going to get to enjoy not many days from now. Because Lord, we're believing in faith. You're going to heal our country and heal our world of this disease. You're going to bring revival, Lord, to your church. You're going to bring revival to your land. We ask these things today, all in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our God, our Savior, our Lord, we pray. Amen and amen.